0: All right, pop quiz this morning. Does anybody know what is the current tallest building in the world? You can go ahead and just say it out loud. Burj Khalifa. I wish I had a prize like a candy bar to give you. I don't, but you get the honor of being the first to know. The Burj Khalifa, it's in Dubai. Anyone know how tall it is? Erasmo, how tall is it? That's okay. I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's 2,722 feet tall. Now, I did cross check, okay, make sure my sources are right. It's 2,722 feet tall. In fact, it stands 649 feet taller than the next tallest building. So, it's not even kind of close. It's by far and away the tallest building um, in the world. And really, it's truly an amazing architectural and engineering accomplishment. In fact, I've been to Dubai and the whole city is impressive, not just this tower. It is a modern global metropolis boasting an impressive skyline. They have indoor skiing, which if you know anything about Dubai, it's in the middle of a desert. You can go skiing with snow in the desert. It has a diverse population. It's one of the most diverse places in the world. And it has luxury beyond comparison. I didn't even find a bubblegum wrapper on the ground the whole time I was there. But what's most impressive to me about Dubai is that it's located in the Arabian desert. When you're there you, you wouldn't think that there should be a city there. When you, in fact when you fly into Dubai as you're kind of making your final descent all you can really see around you is sand. You're in the middle of a desert and then on the horizon you see this city that shouldn't be there. It's this oasis in the desert. As a pair of American observers put it, Dubai is a city where everyone and everything in it, its luxuries, laborers, architects, accents, even its aspirations have been flown in from somewhere else. Leon Cryer, who's a prominent architect uh, in this last half century, said this, A city is not an accident, but the result of a coherent, of, of coherent vision and aims. A city is not an accident, but the result of coherent visions and aims. If you study Dubai, one thing you'll find out is Dubai is not an accident. It's the result of the coherent vision and aim of its leader, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum. He's largely credited with seeing this metropolis bloom in the desert. And uh, speaking to seeing his vision for Dubai, Dubai become a reality, he said this. The word impossible is not in our dictionary in the UAE. Why now? I ask, why not now? There is no finish line for progress, for innovation, for excellence. There's no finish line. Our mission is ambitious, but our determination is bigger. To build a city like Dubai in the Arabian desert takes ambition and determination. And it takes the kind of vision that he had. See, friends, a city is not an accident. It's the result of coherent visions and aims. And today, we're looking at the city of Babel. This city, just like all of the cities, was not an accident. The people who built this city had a coherent vision, a decided aim. And it was precisely their vision and aim that led to its failure. This last story is the conclusion to part one Genesis. We've talked, we're in this series in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is part one. It's what gives us this history, this primeval history. And on the surface, this story in the Tower of Babel, it's a simple story. It's got a very clear plot line. Humanity decides to build a city and to find its security and provision apart from God. They build a tower to give themselves a great name, And in an act of judgment that's interlaced with mercy, God confuses their language and scatters them. And it's a fitting conclusion to the story. It's a fitting conclusion, especially to this first part of Genesis where we've been learning about the origins of man and the origins of sin. And really this one story incorporates all the themes we've seen so far in Genesis. Genesis. It's like that reprise number at the end of a musical. Have you heard these, right? At the very end, that last song takes bits and pieces from all of the other big numbers and it puts it all together and finally at the end you kind of see the vision and you see kind of the story coming together at that climactic moment. That's what this story is. It's pulling together all of these themes, all these themes. We'll see humanity reject God's word as they seek to find stability and satisfaction and glory apart from God. We'll also see God intervene because the love of God cannot look away indifferently. God's love means that he's interested, that he's determined to act. And we'll also start to see the beginning glimpses into God's plan of redemption. So as we look at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9... We're going to see the story play out this way. First, we're going to see a prideful gathering. Second, we're going to see divine scattering. And at the end, we'll work through a biblical theology to see a gracious regathering. That's our three parts today. A prideful gathering, divine scattering, and a gracious regathering. Look with me at verse 1 to see the prideful gathering. God's word says this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plan in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now let me give a bit of context here. If you remember from last week in Genesis 9, right after the flood, as Noah and his family comes out of the ark, God reestablishes the cultural mandate with Noah to uh, be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. This is a repetition of the same mandate that was given to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and then it's repeated twice more in Genesis 9. God is saying it's time to repopulate the earth and to begin again. And then in Genesis 10, we have another genealogy that lists the descendants of Noah's three sons. You have Shem and Ham and Japheth, and it gives us a, a history, a brief history of who these nations are that are ultimately going to fill the earth. And what these genealogies do in the book of Genesis is they cover a broad swath of time. We, we, talk, we used this analogy before that it's like pressing fast forward button on a a video. Uh, For for those who are old school, remember a VCR, right? You'd hit the fast forward button and it would play through. Now you've got the buttons on the computer screen, but it's a way to quickly scan through uh, uh, time. And that's what these genealogies do, is they cover broad periods of time. Our text today in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, is a flashback. You know how they do this sometimes in movies is you're, you're actually fo- more forward in the storyline, but then there's a flashback to show you a, a, a significant moment in that person's life. That's what this is. Genesis 11 chronologically happens after Genesis 10, but it's, it's a flashback moment and it's making a point. See, in Genesis 10, we see the spreading of, of humanity uh, Genesis 10 tells us of these, these different nations that develop, but Genesis 11 tells us how these different uh, nations came to have different languages. And in this genealogy, in Genesis 10, we learn about the descendants of Ham. If you remember from last week, Ham dishonored his father, Noah. And because he shamed his father, his line received a curse instead of blessing. His line becomes the new line of the serpent that we saw earlier in Genesis 6. The line of Cain, right? This unrighteous line that rejects and abandons God. And in Genesis uh, 10, 6 through 10, it tells us that Ham has a son named Cush. Remember that name, Cush. It's going to come up later. And Cush fathers Nimrod. And he establishes the kingdom of Babel in the land of Shinar. We hear all of that in Genesis 10. And if you know a little bit about Israel's history, this city of Babel eventually becomes the city of Babylon. And it becomes this kingdom of the Babylonian Empire. And if you know anything about the Babylonian Empire, eventually they come through and destroy Israel. They will destroy their temple and they're going to force their people to live in exile. And so we're getting the beginnings and the foreshadowings of a significant enemy of God's people. But that's a story for another day. Now I want to highlight one more thing we saw in verse 1. Moses specifically mentions that the people who founded Babel migrated eastward. Did you see that? People came from the east to settle in this city. Now if you're reading closely and paying attention, Moses has been carefully noting the direction of people who are looking for a home. So in Genesis 3... Adam and Eve, they choose to take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves and God exiles them, right? And they leave Eden. Do you remember what direction they went when they left Eden? They went eastward, right? That's our first hint. And the next chapter, Cain was exiled from the presence of God for killing his brother Abel. And the Bible says he went to dwell in a land east of Eden. He went further east. So his parents get exiled, they go east. He commits uh, fratricide, kills his brother, and he is exiled even further east. Later on, we're skipping ahead in Genesis, when Lot and Abraham separate. Abraham says, you can go in whatever direction you want. If you want this land, I'll go. If you want to go, I'll go. Whatever. It doesn't matter to me. You choose. Which direction does Lot choose to go? Eastward. Abraham remains. Lot goes eastward. Lot eventually goes to Sodom. Things don't turn out too well for the city of Sodom. And here in Genesis 11, we get a hint at what's to come as Moses tells us they settle eastward. Old Testament scholar John Salehammer says this, in the Genesis narratives, when people go east, they leave the land of blessing, Eden and the promised land, to go to a land where their greatest hopes will turn to ruin. Moses is a brilliant writer. He's giving us these literary hints to show you what's to come. And as this group of people move eastward to establish this new kingdom, we're going to find that their greatest hopes turn to ruin. Now look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So what happens is they arrive in this land of Shinar on this plain and they start to build a city. They discover this new technology, the brick. See, people had started to observe that when, uh, when you had clay and you left it out in the sun and the sun baked it, it would become hard. And they take this observation mixed with human ingenuity and realize we can make these things. We can make these really strong, durable bricks that enables faster and better building than anyone's done before. Because where they are, there's no stones they can't build with stones so that they've got to make one and there's this new technology called the brick. Then in verse 4 they say this, then they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Remember how I told you earlier that a city is not an accident, that it's built with a coherent vision and aim. Right here in verse 4, we get their vision. We get their purpose and aim. As they built the city with its impressive tower, here's their vision. Number one, first, in their pride, they desire self-reliance. They desire self-reliance. Notice, the focus is on themselves. Did you see that in the text? Come, let us build ourselves a city. And let's make a name for ourselves. This is a self-reliant, self-focused people. They're consumed with their selves. And if you notice, who is glaringly omitted from their vision? No mention of God whatsoever. They want to build a life for themselves without a shred or trace of God. They're networking together together. They're huddling together, pulling their resources to ensure their security, stability, and provision. And all of it is happening apart from God. You see them trusting in their own technological capacities. There's a drive. They're driven by this desire for glory, for security and fame. Now none of these things are inherently or even necessarily evil. Security is a good thing. Glory is a good thing. However, when these things are pursued apart from God and in direct disobedience from God, they become wicked and evil. Technological advancement can make us bolder in our rebellion. Don't you see that playing out in our own society today? We're the most technologically advanced society that's ever walked the face of God. Of the earth And all it does, for all of its uh, benefits, it only makes us more bold in our self-reliance and rejection of God. Because of all of our technology, we feel more stable and secure. And we begin to take pride in our capacity and think we don't need God. In their new vision, in their vision for a new city, they wanted to be self-reliant. Number two... In their pride, they desire self-identity. In their pride, they desire self-identity. Notice, what do they want to do? They want to make a name for themselves. They don't want God to give them a name. They don't want to receive a name. They want to build a name. They want to achieve a name. They want to make it for themselves. They want an identity that is disconnected from God. They want an identity that they can achieve rather than an identity that they receive. In their pride, they want the renown and glory that comes from building and achieving an identity by their own hands. In their vision for this new city, they want to self-identify. Third, in their pride, they desire self-rule. Did you notice the explicit rejection of God's reign Rule. They don't want to follow God's word to spread out and multiply and fill the earth. They're supposed to spread out, have families, and fill the earth with image bearers, exercising a rightful and responsible rule and reign over creation. God wants his image bearers to spread out, fill the earth, so that his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. But this people group is not concerned at all with God's glory. In fact, they're consumed with their quest for their own glory. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to decide and self-govern. They want to decide what is good and best for them. And this whole project, this building of a city is proposed as an alternative to obeying God's word. You see, God's not opposed to city building. He's not opposed to technology. But he is opposed to anything that directly goes against what he's told you to do. He opposes rebellion, not technology. Babel is not an accident. It's the result of a coherent vision and aim. They said, let's settle here, lest we be dispersed across the face of the earth. It's an outright rejection of God's word. This city, the vision for it, is built without God. And it's built by their own prideful self-reliance, self-identity, and self-rule. So how does that work out for them? Let's look at the next verse to see, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. In verse 4, we see a, a group of people bound and determined to build a tower that reaches to the heavens with their new technological innovation, the brick. But in verse 5, the Lord has to come down to see their tower. And if you think that sounds sarcastic, that's because it is. Moses is using sarcasm to make his point. You see, in our pride, we over and we overestimate our worth and our accomplishments. Right? They're all looking together and saying, look how awesome and big our tower is. And Moses is saying, yeah, as tall as it was, it was still small compared to the God of the universe. That he had to come down to see this itty bitty tower That they had made. Now, what is this tower? Well, um, most scholars agree that this tower is likely an ancient Near Eastern ziggurat. And if you're not familiar with a ziggurat, that's okay. Here's a picture of what one would have looked like. Now, for this time period, uh, for their time period, this would have been a massive structure, estimated at about 150 to 200 feet high. Now, I realize it's no Burj Khalifa, but they don't have cranes. They don't have modern equipment. And so for them at this time, this is a technological achievement. The structure, and and by the way, none of you have built a structure 200 feet high anyway, all right? You're looking at me like, 200 feet, that's nothing. You've never made your own bricks and built a tower, okay? But they did. Now this structure would have a large square base and each next level would be smaller than the one on top of it. What does it look like? Kind of looks like a man-made mountain, doesn't it? Right, A big wide base at the bottom that goes up to a peak at the top. Now why is that important? Well, again, if we're tracking in the book of Genesis, you remember back to Genesis 2, we learned about Eden. And if you follow the details closely, Genesis 2 depicts Eden as having a raised elevation. It's not some flat plain. It's actually more of a mountain. See, it says that in, uh, in Eden there flowed a river... That waters the garden and then it divided into four rivers. Rivers always flow down from a higher elevation, right? So in Genesis 2, we see Eden as this elevated, raised structure. Later, in fact, in the book of Ezekiel, the Garden of Eden is called the Mountain of God. See, Eden was this place where humanity was meant to thrive as they dwelled with God under his good care and reign. Now... If you remember from a couple weeks ago, when Noah's ark, when the floods subside, where does his ark rest? On a mountain, Mount Ararat, right? It comes to rest on a mountain. And then what happens from there? God gives the renewed covenant to multiply and fill the earth. In fact, we're supposed to see this as a new Eden, a new beginning, a new start for humanity to live under God's good care and rule. But what's happening here in Genesis 11? Humanity is building its own mountain. Think about that. They've made this artificial man-made mountain to access the divine on their own terms. It's the epitome of pride. You could even, in fact, say they don't want God as much as they want to be God. See, when you want to define the terms and build the structures, what you're really saying is, god i don't think you're doing a good job of being god i think i could do a better job this is the height of human arrogance but moses tells us god comes down to see what they've done now let's see what he says in verse six and the lord said behold they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they'll do nothing that they propose now will be impossible for them Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God makes an accurate assessment. He looks down on their pride. He looks down on their arrogance and says, listen, they're, they're a unified people. They're armed with pride. And, he got, and, and God knows that with their pride, that it's only, this is only the beginning of what they'll do. They're going to spread that kind of pride and arrogance around. And it will metastasize into something more pernicious and more destructive. See, God is the God who knows everything. Theologians call this God's omniscience. He knows every single thing. Here's what that means. God knows what was. God knows what is. God knows what will be. But God also knows what could be. And he knows their potential for evil. Think about the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. Kids, this is your science lesson for the day. Adults, if you missed this in physics, here we go. We've got potential energy and kinetic energy, okay? Now potential energy is the energy that is stored up in this massive, the biggest tennis ball I've ever seen in my entire life. It's stored up right now. Kinetic energy is when this thing goes into motion. So when I hold it right here, science says it has potential energy. It's stored up. It's not moving right now, but it has the ability to. The only thing that's keeping it at bay is my arm, right? That's potential energy. It's stored up. But the second I let go of it, this massive tennis ball in motion is kinetic energy. All this potential energy is transferred into kinetic energy, right? Okay, that's that's what God is doing here. What he's saying is he sees their potential for evil. It's stored up. He can see into their heart. He sees all their pride. He sees all their arrogance. Right? That's what he says. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing will be impossible for them. And so God who is never passive. He is never standing by. Disinterested. Indifferent. He moves into action. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God moves. And he acts in a way that is both merciful and just. I really want you to see that today. That God dispersing them is an act of mercy and an act of judgment. Here's how. In his mercy... He limits their potential for evil. I know a lot of times we look around the world and we see how evil and wicked it is. But friends, I want to tell you if God was not holding it back, that the human potential for wicked and evil knows no limits. We just don't know how bad it could have been. And God is reserving and holding it back like a reservoir, like a dam, holding back the potential for human evil and wickedness. And we see a glimpse of that here as he disperses them. He says, look, what they could do is so wicked and evil that I'm going to make it such that they can't be unified in this way. But it's also judgment. He acts in judgment and punishes their sinful ambition to build a city apart from God. You remember their vision and aims at the start of, their chap- of this project? They wanted a name for themselves. They wanted to unify around their abilities. They wanted to gather instead of spreading out. They wanted a city built on ingenuity, ambition, and glory. And what we have here is a complete reversal. Instead of a name of great renown, what do they get? They get a name of failure. Their very city name, Babel, means confusion. Ironically... The purpose of this city was what? To keep its inhabitants from spreading out and scattering over the earth. And what happens? The Lord reverses their plan and he disperses and scatters them. They leave the city half built. Their project ends in failure. Genesis 11 and really the first 11 chapters of the Bible have really been making the same point over and over and over God has this plan to bless humanity, to provide for them what is good. He desires to see humans thrive and flourish and yet humanity time and time again refuses to trust God. Refuses to enjoy the good he's provided in order to pursue goodness on our own terms. Instead of delighting in the name that God wants to give them... Instead of delighting in the identity that God wants to give them, we want to build a name for ourselves. Instead of trusting God's plan for us, we want to build our own little kingdoms on our own terms. Instead of living under the good rule and reign of God, we want to be sovereign and autonomous. The people of Babylon were unified in their vision, purpose, and goals. See, unity wasn't their problem. Do you hear that sometimes? People say, if we could just be unified, everything, all of our problems would go away. Unity wasn't their problem. What their problem was is what they were unified around. Derek Kidner writes this, the Tower of Babel makes it clear that unity and peace are not ultimate goods. Better to have division than collective apostasy. See, unity isn't an absolute good. It depends on what You're unified around. Because if you're unified around evil, it's not going to turn out good. And when you build your life on a vision and aim apart from God, you are destined for frustration and failure. Listen to that again. When you build your life on a vision and aim apart from God, you are destined for frustration and failure. So by way of application, I want us to consider the cities and towers that you and I are building. In the same way that a city is not an accident, it's the result of a coherent vision and aim, our lives are not accidents, but the result of a coherent vision and aim. I want you to consider that wherever you are today the sum of the days and months and years of your life, you did not accidentally arrive here. No one is where they are by accident. To believe that is to deny responsibility for your life. Every single one of us has lived with a coherent vision and a decided aim. Some of us have been more aware of our aims and visions but every one of us has lived with a set of desires and values and goals and dreams and aspirations and ambitions. The question for us is never, will you live for something? The question is always, what are you living for? You are not an accident. Your life is not an accident, it is the result of a coherent vision and aim. So I have some questions for us to consider. As we assess our vision and aims for our life. Number one, if you're taking notes, these would be good questions to write down. Our souls don't have time to meditate and really come up with good answers to these questions in the few minutes we have together. These are things you do alone in prayerful, thoughtful consideration. Number one, are you making a name for yourself or receiving the name God gives you? When it comes to identity, you will either spend your life trying to achieve a name by your own ambition and accomplishments, or you will spend your life receiving the name that God gives you as a beloved son or daughter of God. Friends, look at me. The identity that you achieve is fragile. It is so fragile that if you speak too loud or handle it too tightly, it will Break. Achievements are short-lived. So the target is always moving, isn't it? You gain something and you stand there and look back on it, but as soon as you do, it starts to decay. As soon as you do, it starts to become less valuable and you will live a frenzied life trying to measure up to impossible standards. However, the identity you receive from God is unshakable. Why? Because it is grounded in the settled love of God for you in Christ Jesus. You can't mess it up. Because it's anchored and rooted in an unshakable God. So what God says about you, when God transfers his love on you and calls you his son or daughter, no one or nothing can shake it. That's the identity that you can receive from God, When you are adopted into God's family as a son or daughter, it is settled and sure forever. Not even you can mess it up. Are you trusting in? Are you making a name for yourself or receiving the name God gives you? Number two, are you trusting in your own abilities or trusting in the provision of God? Friends, when you trust in your own abilities... You will have this nagging sense to want to stockpile securities and live with a sense of entitlement. But when you're trusting in the provision of God, you will live with a sense of gratitude that everything you have is a gift. And the generous God who gave to you today will continue to be generous to you. And you will start to see your abilities and your resources as a gift from God to be generously given to others And to be used for the glory of God. Are you trusting in your own abilities or trusting in the provision of God? Number three, are you making decisions autonomously or under the good reign and rule of God? See, it's arrogant to think that you know what's best more than God knowing what's best for you. You didn't make you. You didn't design you. You don't know everything. So how could you possibly know more about you than God? But pride always trends towards self-rule instead of God's rule. So what happens is we begin to think, I know what's best for me. It's my truth. I know what's best. And therefore, I'm in the best possible position to make all of the decisions in my life. And so what we end up doing, if we're... Can be honest as Christians. We make the plans fully, never consulting God. And then once it's all said and done, once we've journaled it out, we just pray and say, God, bless my plans. Right? Can we just be honest? That's how we make plans most of the time. God's never consulted at the beginning, never consulted in the middle. He's only asked to baptize and Christianize our plans afterwards. When it comes to making decisions for your life, how does God's word factor into your decision? Is it completely absent? Is it merely consulted and considered as like another voice in the room? Or is God's word and God's will the determining factor in both the mundane, everyday decisions and the major decisions of your life? I also want you to consider right now If you have plans that are getting frustrated right now, could it be that God is graciously intervening into your life? Maybe you're uh, building towers of Babel in your life and God in his grace and mercy is coming and confusing and disrupting those plans out of an act of love and mercy. See, we don't often think that way, do we? We think when things aren't going the way I want, God must be angry with me. God must not want me to thrive. And when in fact, most of the time, I think God is frustrating those things so that we would actually thrive. So that we will flourish. Because the plans we're making don't lead to thriving and flourishing. What man-made plans might God be scattering to give you something better? What man-made plans that you have devoted so much time and energy into right now, might God be scattering to give you something better? Friends, if you build your life with a vision and aim apart from God, it will end in frustration and failure. This is the lesson of Babel. The wise in the room, he who has an ear, she who has an ear to hear, let them hear. Let's not make the same mistake of Babel. We're meant to learn the lesson of Babel and at the same time we're meant to long for things to come. So far we've seen this prideful gathering and this divine scattering. Let's end with the hope of a gracious regathering. See the Tower of Babel ends with this lingering question. Will humanity ever be regathered under a coherent vision and aim that leads to our thriving and flourishing? And the answer is Yes. We don't see it here in Genesis 11, but we're we're meant to long for it. And the rest of the Bible unfolds God's plan of redemption. In fact, if you look at the prophecy in Zephaniah chapter 3, we get a glimpse of God's redemption plan to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Look with me at a couple verses in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9. God says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Do you see the reversal of Babel happening? The confused speech becomes a pure speech. There is a name that is desire, but now it's not a name for themselves, but the name of the Lord. And the coherent vision and aim is to what? Seek and serve the Lord. Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush... My worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Remember earlier when I told you to remember that name Cush, right? Ham fathers Cush, Cush fathers Nimrod, they built this city of Babel. Zephaniah is saying that from beyond the land of Cush, those who are dispersed, these people here will one day be gathered again. Do you see what Zephaniah is saying? the dispersed ones, the scattered ones, will one day be the regathered ones to God once again. God is going to gather and regather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And verse 11 says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of your deeds by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty and my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst as a people humble and holy. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Friends, though we deserve to be put to shame for what we've done, God extends grace to the humble for those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. But those who continue in their pride will receive judgment and be removed. And then if you fast forward to the very end of the Bible... You see in Revelation 7, this vision that John has for this regathering of God's people with a coherent vision and aim. Look at Revelation 7, 9 and 10. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see this? The scattered nations become the gathered, the shamed are now clothed in white robes. No one can count the multitudes from every nation, tribe, and people and language. And what is their coherent vision? What has been their unifying principle? It's the Lamb of God. Everyone standing before the throne and the Lamb saying, salvation belongs to our God. Friends, the only way to be united together in eternity, experiencing ever increasing joy is to center your life around Christ he is the only coherent vision that makes sense for all of life and he is the only aim worth giving your life for I'll close with the words of pastor R Kent Hughes he writes this then and today the message is the same we must leave Babel with its proud dreams and God-defying ways if there's to be any hope We must abandon our Babylonian heart's search for security in the city of man with its collective delusions. Man's Babylonian heart may meld political philosophy and economic theory and technology and psychology and religion into a mighty self-elevating ziggurat. Listen to this. It will never affect the autonomy and security we long for. We will never scale heaven. We must leave off chasing a name and find our identity in Christ. Let's pray.